Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. My very special guest today is Reggie Davis, president of Flagstar Bank's banking division. Flagstar is a $30 billion community bank based in Michigan. Reggie's also a board member of Lincoln Financial Group, so he brings two unique perspectives on financial services, both from a board perspective and an operating executive perspective. So welcome, Reggie. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Alan. Good to be here. So I'd love to dive in a little bit into your personal story and your background, as I'd like to do with all of our guests, particularly how you got into banking You know, right away after graduating from Morehouse College and then working your way all the way up in some of the largest banks in the country into senior leadership roles and into the position you're today. So give us a little bit of your story, please. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, uh, I did not necessarily pursue a job in banking. Um, I actually I had a, a major in actuarial science and insurance and, and was going in that direction. Um, was working for the equitable life in New York as an intern and, you know, thought that that would be a, a great career path. And then, you know, as often happens, those conversations around being an actuary exposed me to other people in the organization at equitable. And that was in the real estate area. And it just, we were basically providing investment dollars to those folks in what they call general account eight to make investments, equity investments, et cetera, in real estate. And, you know, as a 20 something year old, it just seemed a heck of a lot more interesting and exciting. And so my interest turned more to real estate. And so I was trying to figure out how to leverage my academic experience into a career in real estate. And at that point, you know, there, the companies weren't institutional enough to offer a training program. So you had to try to find a way to kind of supplement that. And I thought, well, if I go into banking or financial services, maybe they could train me and I could get some exposure. And so I started interviewing with firms trying to figure out, was there a backdoor into the real estate finance area? And, and that's actually by turning First Union down three times. Um, I, um, and then finally having the CEO recruit me and promised me, along with the guy who was the head of real estate at the time, uh, who was Gene Clark, who actually is Dwight Clark from the 49ers' father, Okay, cool. uh, promised that he would give me some exposure and training in real estate. And that's how I ended up at First Union, thinking I was going to be a developer at some point in time. So was that uh, Crutchfield when he was running First Union? Yeah, Ed Crutchfield recruited me. Yes, he came to Atlanta University for a luncheon. I turned First Union down. I thought I was going to New York. Everybody from Morehouse went to some New York bank and Ed sat next to me, put his big arm around me and basically told me I was coming to work for him. <laughs> he was quite a recruiter, both of people and of banks, because you know he obviously built you know what you know, today is, you know, Wells Fargo, basically, like the foundation of that, you know, a few mergers along the way, including uh, many of the banks in Philadelphia, as you well know, because you worked in this market. So yeah, there were over, there were over 100 acquisitions during my tenure at First Union slash Wachovia. So it was, uh, you know, and that was obviously very um, instrumental in helping me in my career and exposing me to things that I otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to. So it's been a great, great ride. You did leave there at some point, I guess, First Union became Wachovia. Right. And then ultimately Wells Fargo, but you went to RBC for a while and then SunTrust. What made you make those changes? Because it does seem like you were kind of on the fast track at First Union Wachovia. Uh, I was. I was on the short list. 
um, to be, I was already obviously very senior leader managing most of the traditional banks, so retail and wholesale. And then when I left, um, you know, I really, as you can imagine, the financial uh, crisis was a tough period of time um, from a leadership perspective. And it took a lot out of me. I mean, I absorbed a lot of emotion uh, from I was managing an extremely large team, managing clients, fears and anxieties and um, working very long hours. And so when I left, um, I just decided to take some time and really think about what I wanted to do going forward and how I wanted to spend my time. I had spent 20 some odd years at First Union Wachovia, a long career, worked myself up from, uh, you know, a uh, an associate up to, you know, reporting to the vice chair and running a good part of the company. And so I took that time off and really wanted to do something different. I interviewed at some large banks and I thought to myself, do I really want to just kind of have another big job that um, really didn't have a whole lot of creativity? It was more or less managing, really managing something. And I, I wanted the opportunity to lead something. And leading, in my mind, has to do with doing something different, distinctive, creating something um, significant. And a lot of times it means leading change, right, in, in the face of, of what I call more traditional things. And so um, I actually, the, the, the RBC opportunity came to me. Um, and it was a function of um, the then CEO of RBC had heard my name repeatedly um, by both the recruiters and by um, the McKinsey folks, because I had worked with them at Wachovia. And so my name got resurfaced. I interviewed with them. Um, they had just turned over their leadership team in the U.S. And I got brought in as kind of the turnaround guy. And I thought, well, here's a company that is um, searching for answers. And, uh, and, and I find that, you know, unfortunately, companies that are operating from a position of strength oftentimes are less willing to change than those that are in the throes of some tragedy or something that makes them rethink almost right. everything and consider, right, some unconventional approaches. And so knowing that, I went to RBC thinking, well, maybe here's a platform um, with a strong financial parent that can think differently about the financial services business. Because I just wasn't convinced that the conventional thought was where the industry was going to eventually go. And so I went there with that idea in mind. Unfortunately, the Canadians didn't have as much stomach for, <laughs> during the financial crisis. And they sold I, the business. As I, yeah, and they, they told me they didn't think that the economy was going to turn around till 2020. And that was in 2012. And I thought, all right, well, <laughs> they asked me to sell the company. And so that's essentially what we did. Right, right. You know, your, your point on um, operating in, you know, when things are good versus a crisis mode. Um, and, and to me, the best companies will use the opportunity when things are good to say, all right, we're, what, it's, it's good right now. So we're making good money and things are rolling. What do, let's, let's look further out. What do we need to do to be ready for the next wave, the next you know, opportunity, the next crisis. And even in our own, you know, boutique firm, you know, our, our, our firm's done really well over the last year and we're putting for us a meaningful amount of money in upgrading technology, upgrading our, our digital presence, all those kind of things for us, because, you know, right now we have the capital to do that, you know? Um, so a little bit of a parallel there. So but, but it's, it's interesting how you didn't ask me this, but, but it's human nature because, one of the biggest challenges I've had in my career is getting leaders to think differently when things are going well. 
And you know, I've always said success is the enemy of future success. That's right. It's a really tough thing to reconsider paradigms when the when the existing paradigm seems to be working so well. Right. Now that's a really, really great point. And we see it, of course, all the time in a very state industry like banking. So I just want to go back a little bit, not to put you on the spot with this question, but so here you are in the mid-80s, you know, as a really smart, you know, talented guy, interested in financial industry, you know, as a young black man working in a, a heavily white male dominated industry and predominantly in the South. Can you talk a little bit about your formative experiences from that? I mean, obviously you performed exceptionally well and were able to move up, but um, it must've been an interesting time. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I think I was the second African-American recruited into the associate program at First Union. And, you know, I remember um, having uh, an African-American woman, Deborah Frazier, who became a good friend of mine. And she said, well, what, you know, what do you want to do? Like, what's your ambition? And I hear I am an associate. And I said, well, I want to be CEO. And she, she looked at me and she said, you want to do what? <laughs> I said, well, you know, forgive me. I'm, I'm a Morehouse man. I, my ambitions are not modest. I want to be CEO, you know, and I'm willing to work hard to do it. And, you know, I tried to be a student of leadership. And that was, you know, across whether it was gender, race, et cetera, anybody who was successful at anything, I tried to understand how they created their success. And the thing that I did understand is that everybody creates success differently based on who they are and what their skills are and et cetera. And so I, I didn't mimic myself after any one person, but I picked up things along the way. Um, I didn't have a lot of you know African-American folks I could look, look to um, at that point in time. And so a lot of the folks I looked to were not, they were white men. But at the same time, you know, they, they offered me insights. And in some cases, they became mentors. Um, but, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I think early on, it was a challenge for me. I remember going to an audit in Fayetteville, North Carolina with um, my manager. And I drove myself. And I remember showing up earlier than he did. And I got to the door and I knocked on the door. And the lady came to the door and, and she asked me. I had a briefcase and I had a suit on. She said, are you here to fix the typewriter? That not, <laughs> not actually here to do an audit. And she she refused to let me in until my manager showed up. She didn't, I was there and I worked for the bank. So, you know, there were little, there were lots of little stories about, you know, persevering just what I would consider, you know, um, ego insults where people just see you in a certain frame of reference that they had. Um, but but I think the part that were, was formative is as I became a calling officer and in real estate, so take the banking industry, but then multiply that by saying, you know, commercial real estate, there were no African-Americans. And so I was always the only one. And I was young at the time. I was still in my, when I start calling. And so I'd show up and, you know, I think in some cases it provided a, a benefit in that people were always curious. I mean, they wouldn't say it, but it's like, you know, they come out to the lobby and they see me sitting there and it's like, so first union, let this guy call. I got, I, I want to at least figure out why, like, why is he sitting there? And so, and then it was up to me, obviously, to demonstrate my knowledge. The other thing I would tell you is I, I did learn that. So I, I was fortunate enough to be with a company, first union, who took a lot of risk in the acquisition game, which meant they were very risk averse when it came to pricing and credit. 
And so I didn't have anything to, most people would sell based on price or structure or something like that. I had none of that. And I didn't look like anybody else like me calling on those clients. And so I would spend every weekend just reading and studying and trying to understand every element of the business I could, even beyond my part. I mean, it got down to, I would know the cost of lumber. You know, I would know cap rates in the permanent market. I understood derivatives inside and out and it could explain them. And so I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything else to fall back on. I did people from the country club. I've never been to a country club, <laughs> you know, and so being competent was all I had that all I could rely on. And so I set out to be more competent than anybody else that was doing what I was doing. And that, you know, it didn't always work, but it worked enough. Um, and then the funny thing is my mother probably had as much to do with my early success as I did, because although I was competent, getting in a door was really tough. And so I'd sit around these meetings and my peers would say, oh, well, my, my dad knows the CEO of so-and-so company. I think I can get in the door with the treasurer and da 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 And of course, so I would never get any of the, the really good referrals. I'd get the, the guy who had two nickels to rub together. <laughs> we couldn't lend him any money. But my mother was the first African-American department head of the art department at Pace Academy, which is a private school in Buckhead in Atlanta. And she taught a lot of kids and they would, of course, have open house. She taught their kids. She talked to anybody and she'd get cards for me and she'd come home and go, you know, hey, I met the president of, do you know, the president of, you know, Carter and Associates or whatever. And she'd go, well, you know, here's this card. He said, call him. And so I would call him. And so I, all of a sudden I'm sitting in the meeting and they'd say, well, you know, we haven't been able to get into so-and-so company, you know, Weeks company. And I go, well, I talked to the CEO the other day and I've got an appointment set up with them next week. And they start, start looking at me. And then I leverage my confidence in the getting business. And I like to say, there's not one prospect I ever went after that I didn't get. I was, I was relentless. I would, there was one company, the Weeks company that I called on for seven years before they gave me business, but I was relentless. Um, the CFO said, you know, I, we're, we're happy at the time. It was, he was with Wachovia. I was at first junior. He said, we, we, the company, when my father founded the company, been with Wachovia forever, we're not changing. I told him, I said, John, his name was John Atwood. I said, John, what if I call you um, a year from now? But he said, I don't want you to bug me. I said, well, if I call you a year from now, he goes, okay. So I left his office at 1.30. At 1.30, a year later, I called him on the exact same day. I said, John, it's me. And he said, he, he kind of chuckled and said, nah, we're, we're happy with Wachovia. I did that for seven years. And it became a joke. You know, he would just lie, call every, and he'd just start laughing. And the seventh time I called, he said, you know what? You know, they're kind of, they're slow on a credit request we had. Why don't you come out and talk to us? And I got that, I got that transaction. So, so just to, to um, stay a little bit more on this one theme, you know, um, I've read some some terrific um, articles from you know Ken Chenault and and Ken Fraser and Merck, you know, guys that you know, you know, leading CEOs in the country who happen to be African American, um, and both of them have written about trying to lift up and identify promising Black and Brown and, and Asian executives in the middle of the organization or even in the lower part of the organization who, you know, like you said, don't have the network, 
or they get overlooked or they're not um, in the right, you know, club, whatever. And that over a longer term, we need to pull those people, you know, into upper and middle management with training programs and identify them. And then hopefully they can go further. Can you talk a little bit about um, your experiences and, and how you feel about either that approach or other approaches? Because everyone wants to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. Everyone now, I think, mostly finally understand, yeah, that's really important. And there's a lot of issues and things that we need to solve in corporate America. And we need growth and we need to represent. And But can you, can you give us your views a little bit on how we can help accelerate and, and what where we need to go? Yeah, I, I think there are a, a, a couple things that I would, you know, just reflect on in my career. One is the environment that you create. Um, you know, I think I learn more from my mistakes, and that's normal. But I think the thing is, is at least at First Union, you were encouraged to make mistakes as long as they weren't big mistakes and they weren't repetitive mistakes. <laughs> right. Mistakes, if you were in the pursuit of trying to accomplish something worthwhile, you weren't punished for that mistake. <clears throat> no leader has ever gotten anywhere and become a successful leader without developing both the resilience, the confidence, and the lessons learned from making mistakes. And so the environment you create is really important. It's doubly important for somebody of color because oftentimes it's difficult for people to see somebody of color in a role. And when I say see them, imagine them being successful. They are different. You know, they may come from a different experience socially, et cetera. So unconscious bias. Right. So it's it's harder for for us to look the part. So we definitely have to have the substance, at least, to be considered. And that comes from creating the opportunities. And the opportunities create the ability to learn. And, and I was afforded that. But I also think there are nuances around corporate culture that, you know, require mentorship. It requires somebody to pull you aside or somebody that you can talk to to say, hey, this happened to me. I, I actually had someone call me recently and said, man, you know, I got caught, got caught in this situation and I can't figure out whether I should level with my boss around the mistake I made because there's an opportunity for me, you know, to quite honestly, they may not ever know I made this mistake. And so I just keep quiet, you know? And so we had that conversation not just this is what you should do, but think about the repercussions and here are the, you know, the different forks this could take, right? And so being able to do that calculus and having someone practice thinking through scenarios and teaching them how to make decisions in a company, because it's different from making personal decisions, right? And so that that's also important. Um, I think the opportunity is to provide people with you know, the experience also, though, so many times we don't have the requisite experience um, putting us in different roles. I, because I grew up in a company that was acquisitive, I got dropped in different roles. And so the not only the depth, but the breadth of my experience allowed me to, be, to I think, be a little bit more knowledgeable about different parts of the organization, have experiences in different parts, different leadership styles, experience different you know, organizational structures and different skill sets, et cetera. And so that made me somewhat um, a greater utility to the organization, which allowed them then to oh, later on in my career for those things to, to pay dividends. So, you know, it's all about giving people chances. And even me at, my, at a senior level, I will tell you that some of the companies I work for, I will 
remain nameless, just had a hard time taking the risk, right? They, it's like, I, I'm, I'm not sure. We have to make sure that he can do that job. When I had actually done the job in other organizations, but that was tough. They had to see me do the job in that particular company. So somebody, the sponsorship really important. And people think the sponsorship is, you know, tapping somebody on the head around, yeah, I want to make sure they get the promotion. No, it's not. It's actually managing their career in a way where they learn, they're insulated from making mistakes. They're allowed to stretch their wings and gain confidence that they need. They're allowed to start to understand the social and political nuances of the culture, et cetera. That's what a good sponsor will do. And it actually takes sponsorship more than mentorship. It takes both, but you got to have sponsorship. I want to shift gears. A little, thank you for that. I want to shift gears a little bit because you mentioned the word culture, which made me think of Flagstar, where you've been for two years now. Um, obviously, they've um, gone into a substantial merger transaction, you know, where at least on paper, they're the junior partner. And yet um, you're going to have you're going to run the whole banking operation for a 90 billion dollar company. You've done a job like that before, but talk if you could a little bit about the cultural pieces of that merger and also kind of how you feel about and how you ended up, you know, getting this really big job. Yeah. So I'll start with this notion. I mean, it, there's a lot of um, energy spent in the press around cultural differences or similarities in mergers. And what I would tell you, my experience at First Union is every culture is different. Uh-huh. That's right. The that I use is, you know, you and I may be the best of friends. And in a friendship, we find lots of commonalities. But I guarantee you, if I go over your house or you go over my house, the norms are very different. Right. And that's and, and so it's the same thing in a company. Even though on the surface, we may think that there are a lot of similarities as you get in and understand how decisions are made, uh, how things get done. It's just different. So I think all companies have differences in culture. I do think Flagstar and uh, NYCB come from very similar backgrounds in that they're banking organizations that grew up around a really almost outsized part of the business, Flagstar being mortgage, NYCB being the multifamily um, housing portfolio. And they were extremely successful in those narrow businesses. And it got them to a place where they had to think about what is what does tomorrow look like? What does the future look like? And so I think that commonality of mission is really important because there's no divergence in terms of understanding where we have to go, right? So I think that's good. Now, how we make decisions, it's a it's a Midwest bank and, you know, and a New York bank. Are there cultural differences? Yeah, there probably are. Probably stylistically, not value-wise, but stylistically, there probably will be. When I was at Wachovia, there were stylistic differences between the northern part of the, co the company and the southern part. And my boss used to tease me and say I was bilingual because I was born in the northeast and my adult career was in the southeast. So I kind of understood both cultures. <laughs> and so I may I may play a similar role in this situation where sometimes when we try to communicate, our communication just doesn't necessarily line up. Um, but, you know, I think me landing this role had a lot to do with my experience. Um, what I was trying to bring to Flagstar, which was a company that thought banking was the future, um, creating a balance sheet that was, you know, had cheaper funding, meaning, you know, less time deposits, expensive money markets and more core, core uh, deposits. 
um, to create a, a solid funding base with more duration and less volatility. Um, you know, a, an ability to generate assets like you know, more annuitized assets like on the retail and wholesale side. And we had really been pretty far along at Flagstar around thinking about the future of banking and what it looked like and kind of starting to transform the company. I think now with NYCB, we have a great partner. They wanted to do something similar. Now we've got a bigger company. And, and so I'm excited about that. I mean, it was just, it was kind of a natural for me to keep doing what I had set out to do. And I, I'm, as you can tell, I'm really excited about it. That's great. That's great. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. And of course, NYCB has operations, you know, nearby in the Midwest already. So that'll be a, that'll be a plus. And we'll see what they do on the name and rebranding because I don't know how New York Community Bank or NYCB is going to play in some parts of the Flagstar franchise, but that's a conversation for another day. So we're having um, conversations internally. We we there's more clarity on the kind of company we want to be than there is the name right now, but that's okay. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Well. Um, I'm excited for you at this opportunity, and I think it's going to be a really interesting and good combination. You know, when when you know the dust settles and all that. So, um, best of luck to you in that. I'm, I'm grateful for your time to be here, Reggie. Thanks so much for sharing those insights with us uh, today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Talent Pool podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan from Kaplan Partners. If you'd like to hear more from our guests or learn about our firm, visit kaplanpartners.com. Thanks so much for joining us.